three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And in our pursuit of documenting the early 60s, when interest in psychedelics was again building, one of the people that we don't hear enough about is Dr. John Bairdsford. And to be honest, I wouldn't have found this recording had it not been for Dr. Bairdsford's daughter and son, who are working to ensure that their father's place in psychedelic history isn't forgotten. And uh, for what it's worth, I consider John Bairdsford's contribution to our community right up there on the same level as Albert Hoffman himself. The talk that we are about to listen to was given at the event in Basel, Switzerland that celebrated Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday. And for the superstitious among us, this talk was given on Friday the 13th in 2006. And about halfway through this talk, Dr. Bairdsford says, Consciousness is the origin of all appearance. And I think you may want to pause your player when he says that and spend a little time in contemplation of what he's been talking about. Because if you've been listening to our live salons, then you'll recognize this idea as something that we've also been frequently talking about. Now, here's Dr. John Bairdsford discussing his model for the nature of consciousness. For those of you who are not up on your psychedelic history, this is a rare appearance by Dr. John Beresford, who in 1961 became interested in LSD. And having had only an experience with mescaline, which takes half of gram for an experience, John thought he would write away to Sandoz and conservatively ask for a couple of doses, four doses. So he asked for four gram, two grams of LSD. One gram. One gram of LSD, which came to him in a package with a note that said, good luck. And this, <laughs> this is, I believe, the first presentation of his, um, of his model of consciousness that is derived from supervising many of those sessions. So welcome, John Beresford. Okay, thank you, Robert. I wanted to start by saying that we heard Dr. Hassler this morning... Uh, speaking about the various approaches to consciousness which are currently um, part of Western thinking. And he mentioned four approaches, one being the neuropharmacological, and he used such expressions as the neurons of consciousness, the phenomenology of the brain, and he called LSD a pharmacon. I don't think that it is true that the effect of LSD can be explained by its action on the brain. It's interesting, an interesting approach, but I don't think it, the brain activity anywhere near covers the extent, the range of what we experience in consciousness. He then went on to uh, speak in a very interesting way of the concept of self-deboundarization, as he called it, meaning the um, abolition of the boundary between the self and the other, and the state of consciousness which that propels one into. He then went on to two other approaches, speaking of the political activity that LSD inspires and its effect on culture. I would like to um, introduce two... Uh, I, I believe that all these have their uh, relevant um, purposes 
in um, discussion. But I believe that there are two other approaches which are necessary to complete our understanding, to hopefully complete our understanding of uh, the effect of LSD. And one is what you might call the uh, logical, metaphysical, rational approach. And uh, the second is what I would call the moral approach, which uh, requires us to take into consideration what we do to prisoners, who people who take LSD as, mu as, um, as many of us probably would if we were in a position to, and find themselves locked up in prison for extraordinarily long periods of time, especially in the United States. Uh, I think that the experience of these people uh, needs to be taken into account uh, when we consider what LSD is doing to us and to our society. Okay, uh, on Sunday, I'm going to be presenting to Albert Hoffman an album of letters written by people in prison, LSD prisoners, who have written to Albert to congratulate him on his birthday and to wish him uh, a very happy day and to thank him, in every case profusely thank him for what he's done. These are letters written from the depths of prison and they're going to be illustrated by um, slides, by photographs that these people have sent me to give Albert that message. And I would like, I would hope that uh, as many people as possible will be at that presentation in the forum on Sunday at one o'clock. Okay, on to today's um, talk. In uh, 1961, um, I, I did a number of experiments in, with LSD starting in 1961, and it was the f it's the first of these experiments that I want to uh, discuss today. Um, uh, for this first experiment, 28 participants uh, received up to 250 micrograms of LSD, and eight received up to 60 milligrams of DMT. The LSD was given by mouth and DMT by intramuscular injection. The experiment resulted in a theory of the effect of LSD, which, because it depends on objective findings and not on people's descriptions of their experiences, belongs in the category of natural science, in German Naturwissenschaft, not Geisteswissenschaft. I know that this is um, a controversial claim, but I believe it can be backed up. And because it is a theory of the effect of LSD on consciousness, it has a place in philosophy of mind. Philosophy of mind, in the analytic tradition, which uh, dominates philosophical teaching in every major university in the English-speaking world, is an academic discipline concerned with the meaning of statements made by neuroscientists, psychologists, and others about such things as the relation of the brain to consciousness. Now, it's no secret that the aim of neuroscientists is ultimately to uncover the nature of consciousness. There have been dozens of books on the subject published in the last 10, 15 years. Consciousness is said to be the last frontier which natural science still has to cross. Once it's gone that far, there's nothing more for science to discover is the idea. <laughs> uh, now, if, if LSD can show us the nature of consciousness, I would think that crossing that last frontier will happen sooner than expected. Okay, now, I think we would... Uh, tend to agree that consciousness is a strange animal. Intuitively, you know it is there. 
but you can't sense it, you can't describe it, you can't define it, you can't say what it is. You can't, um, you, you can't predict if a computer is or ever will be conscious. You can't state with any uh, degree of certainty if a space alien who descended and is sitting on my right hand here uh, would be conscious. You can't tell if an animal has the same consciousness as a human being or even if that statement or question makes sense. The whole question of consciousness in philosophy is a mess. Um, viewing consciousness... Now, okay. Against this, the theory that I mentioned states that LSD can be used as a scientific instrument to partition consciousness into its component levels and, um, and to show us how to combine these levels, how these levels combine to form a structure. Now, viewing, viewing consciousness as a structure and not as a mixture containing sensations, feelings, thoughts, intentions, uh, desires, uh, loves, hates, and the hundred and other one things that philosophers like to put into consciousness, doing so um, allows us to uh, think of uh, consciousness in a concrete fashion and allows us to, uh, using a, a structural theory of consciousness, uh, I believe that we can say now what it is. Anyway, so now I'm going to begin with uh, some remarks on how I became interested in LSD. Then I'm going to look at the problem of applying, su applying scientific method to an inquiry into the effect of LSD. Uh, I'll relate some observations that came, came to light when the problem of method was resolved. Then consider how these observations combine to form a theory of the LSD session and uh, end with speculation on the possible relevance of this to philosophy of mind. In 1961, I had an apartment uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, where I led uh, kind of a double life. On weekdays, I was an assistant professor of pediatrics at the New York Medical College teaching students and taking care of patients. On weekends, I hung out with the Bohemian crowd in Greenwich Village, um, in 1961, a story circulated about a mad Harvard professor who had come down to New York on weekends, uh, drop some white-coated tablets on the counter of a village bar and say to anyone who listened, take one, you'll learn something. No one knew what these white-coated tablets were. They were called silly sidebeans. <laughs> and the mad professor, of course, was Tim Leary, on, uh, on a jaunt from Newton Center before his first experience with LSD. Back then in the village, everybody smoked. A nickel bag of marijuana lasted a good week. Eric Loeb ran a store on 8th Street with crates of peyote buttons in the window. My friend Chick Buck, uh, Chuck Bick had an apartment with shelves of interesting chemicals that you could buy. You felt something revolutionary was in the air, and if you stayed with it, you could change the world. My Aries nature did not let me take this lying down. I sent away for items in the Light and Company catalogue in London. Uh, Hoffman LaRoche was willing to supply mescaline. My position at the medical college uh, let me from Sandos in New Jersey and request some LSD. The LSD came in, as Robert said, in, well, he, he said in a, a 
It, it came in two half-gram vials. Uh, that weekend, I opened one with a file and examined the tan-colored tan crystals inside. I took an amount of crystal that clung to the point of a pin and watched it dissolve in water. The experience that followed told me that my life was going to change. <laughs> and it did. So I resigned from the medical college and waited to see what would happen. Uh, when you have a relation with LSD, you can expect the unexpected. For me, it started when I had the idea of the Agora Scientific Trust. Uh, Agora because it would be a place where the effect of LSD could be studied and discussed. Scientific because the study would be scientific. Trust was a pun on the meaning of a legal entity and basic trust. Chance put me in touch with people like Stanley Crane, a brain scientist at Columbia University, Jean Houston, just short of her PhD and brimming with Greek mythology, uh, Howard Eisenberg, an ex-tax lawyer who did the legal work for Agora, a landlord who provided us with a ground floor apartment with a private walled-in garden, perfect for doing sessions in and steps from the Metropolitan Museum, and a benefactor who donated $5,000 all in the space of a month. With a, with a place for sessions magically provided, the first question was, how was a scientific inquiry into the effect of LSD possible? What would constitute the data? What would count as observations? How would observations be described? So here was a stumbling block. You could describe the effect of LSD on human experience or on the effect, uh, or, or you could describe the effect on the anatomy and chemistry of the brain. Neither of these approaches, in my view, was sufficient. Experience, by definition, is not observable. What you observe when someone describes an experience is not the experience, but an utterance of words and sentences. You infer what lies behind the utterance. You hope correctly, but you may not be correct. How someone describes an experience depends on their choice of words, um, their past experience, their wish to say the right thing to please you or otherwise. Uh, descriptions of experience do not provide the data for scientific observations. Okay. As for the option of describing the effect of LSD on brain anatomy and chemistry, that might be scientific, but it would not fit the Agora agenda. Also in 1961... Tim was spreading the idea that set and setting determined the outcome of a session. Sorry, but that could not be true. Set and setting are variables. Get the set and setting in a session right and things go well. Get them wrong and things go horribly. Set and setting by themselves cannot determine the outcome of a, se of a session. There had to be an effect intrinsic to the molecule that did not hinge on the effect of variables. Anyway, a scientific theory depends on findings which can be observed objectively. But it seems you can't make, obs you can't make observations unless you presuppose a theory which, deter which defines the kind of observations you will make. Observations are, as it is said, theory-laden. Now, suppose that such theories as you have in mind are not up to the job. Suppose, for example, that psychoanalytic theory 
in any of its many variants is not up to the job of explaining the effect of LSD. What do you do then? To forge ahead in the hope of making valid observations will get nowhere if such observations as you make reflect a theory which you hold, perhaps unconsciously, and which happens to be wrong. What the situation called for was a theory that steered clear, I'm sorry, what the situation called for was a method that steered clear of theory. This ruled out thinking up, de devising a hypothesis and, ex and planning an experiment to see it, and, and planning an experiment to see if the hypothesis worked. Testing hypotheses would be a waste of time because hypotheses are also theory-laden. A method was required that did not presuppose a theory, had no room for hypotheses, assumptions, or predictions, and left the outcome of a session completely open. This ideal method I called a-theoretical, no theory. There were some practical considerations. I wanted a participant to control the extent of his or her experience. With word getting out about Agora, people approached me with accounts of sessions where high-dose LSD was used to blast through ego defenses, producing experiences that these particular people would not want to repeat. The highest dose of LSD I gave, at least initially, was 250 micrograms for this reason. And this choice of dosage limit turned out to be a fortuitous one, as I will explain in a minute. Talking with a participant before a session, I avoided the word therapy. My role was not that of a therapist. I re refrained from suggesting that a session might lead to a spiritual experience or something on the line of Huxley's. I tried not to suggest anything. My aim was not to explore creative problem solving, nor sow the seeds of revolution. LSD was going to do, do that anyway and didn't need a push from me. The only point I will make now um, in the time available about the method that I followed is that I encouraged the participant to practice identifying early in a session if an opportunity for this arose. Identifying means projecting the center or the feeling of the self onto an object infused with anxiety. Identifying with the object defuses the anxiety and acts as a safety measure. Sessions took place in as normal a setup as possible. No artificial gimmicks such as eye shades to screen out the surroundings. No earphones to... Uh, what I say? No earphones to feed in music that I could not hear. No barrier to ordinary conversation in case something interesting came up. In the first 20 or so sessions, I attended to what I knew had to be going on, the intrinsic effect I was looking for but could not yet take in, meanwhile staying free from distraction. Attending to a thought or feeling of my own could affect the progress of a session. It's worth noting that transmission of a thought or feeling of one's own happens readily and is a source of unwanted suggestion in a session. You have to be careful. Certain observations emerged around the 20th session of the series. I remember the moment when the scales of ignorance fell from my eyes 
and the effect I had been trying not to define lay before me like uncharted territory. Now, at this point, I'm, I've got seven observations that I want to describe. And initially, I was going to project these on the screen. Unfortunately, I found that we require a transparency to work with the machine that does the projection. Uh, I wanted to be able, to, for you to be able to follow these observations on the screen. It would be easier to take them in, but I'm just going to have to read them out. Number one, a session consists of a, of a, a, session consists of a succession of stages. These are periods of a session consisting of distinct kinds of experience, one following the next in a regular sequence. The stages may be numbered one through six using Roman numerals. The regularity of the sequence means that you do not find a stage four preceding a stage three or a stage three preceding, preceding a stage two. Why not? Question. Number two, the transition from one stage to another is abrupt. There are no intervening intervals, nor does one stage drift into another. What accounts for the abruptness of transitions? Another question. Three, a session exhibits a certain momentum as though the participant were pulled from a stage lower in the hierarchy to one stage higher. What is responsible for this pool? Sessions may be rated positive or negative according to the quantity of pleasurable affect feeling. An ideal session may be one where pleasurable affect is continuously present, though this ideal is not always reached. Most sessions are interrupted by a spell of negative in affect, however brief. <clears throat> what causes the onset of negative affect? The onset of a stage, this is the fifth observation, the onset of a stage is marked by a particular kind of transformation. What is transformed is the appearance characteristic of the stage. A normal session is one <clears throat> where appearance is continuously transformed. I repeat the vital sentence. A normal session is one where appearance is continuously transformed. Whether this applies to the sixth stage of a session where there may be no appearance is contentious. What, I ask, what is the anatomy of transformation? What is it all about? Six, negative or unpleasant affect may be counteracted by the use of such maneuvers as identifying with the object on which negative affect is projected. In the sessions I conducted, I found that negative affect coincides with a rest of the transforming process. Everything comes to a standstill. From a condition where the objects of appearance are continuously immobile, appearance becomes immobile, ominously still. Rigidity replaces plasticity. What is the connection between mobility of appearance and good feeling? And why is it, why is it important in the conduct of a session to deal with the arrest of transformations expeditiously. The, the last is the factor responsible for arresting transformations and inducing anxiety. These two things happen uh, together. 
is resistance to the pull or momentum of a session. Resistance is uniformly associated with signs of anxiety. Resistance lower in the echelon of stages is associated with a relatively mild degree of anxiety, while resistance higher in the echelon is associated with anxiety of increasingly severe degree, culminating in panic. <laughs> and uh, does this suggest a new etiology of anxiety? Okay. I won't try to answer these. Louder? What do I have to do? Talk like that? <laughs> okay. I won't try to answer these questions, but go on to the transformations which characterize each stage. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because most of you are familiar with what I'm going to be talking about in, in any case. At the onset of a stage, appearance characteristic of that stage loses its customary stability. Appearance is depatterned or destabilized. At the onset of stage two, for example, sense appearance loses its habitual stability. Outlines waver. Borders shift. The interior of once, object, of once stable objects move. Released from the constraint of maintaining stable appearance, sensory imagination engages in creative play. Abstract patterns, Moorish gardens, Egyptian temples, the repertoire is endless. All these are transformations of sensory appearance. Collectively, they are referred to as the transformations of sense. At the onset of stage three, thought appearance loses its customary stability. We live wrapped in a pattern of thought we call the history of our life. Stage three transformations disrupt this pattern. Thoughts appear in novel sequences and combinations, some forgotten in the usual way, some suppressed on account of association with un unpleasant affect. New combinations of thoughts occur with the surprise of creative discovery. Transformations of the appearance of thought are referred to collectively as the transformation of thought. Descriptions of stage four transformations are often based on Jung and his archetypes of the collective unconscious. I prefer to think in terms of transformations of form. The term is borrowed from Plato and reminds us that existence predates our personal arrival on the planet. Transformations of form pertain to kinds of, appear of appearance not ordinarily accessible. Karmic appearance is one mode of this kind. Once, when lying on my back, at this stage of a session, my body separated into inner and outer sections. The inner subtle body rotated through 180 degrees in the outer material body, landing me face down in the sand of an Egyptian desert, clad as a slave or low-rank soldier, a knife in my back, and unable to breathe. I thought, this is interesting. <laughs> what do I do now? I did nothing, and a reverse rotation brought me back face up in the material body where I lay gazing at the ceiling. Letting whatever was happening happen, I was again pressed face down in the sand and left to suffocate, this time with consequences related to the asthma I had as a child. Now, you only have to have this kind of experience once to know that it is real, 
and that it has nothing to do with the central nervous system, with the brain. It happens independently of anything going on in the central nervous system. Okay, I don't mean to play up the subtle body aspect. Like telepathic communication and out-of-body experience, this can happen at any stage in a session. Also, whether you prefer a a past incarnation explanation, as I do, or you think in terms of DEA or cell memory, as Leary used to, or you stick with Jung's idea of a collective unconscious, my slave body representing an archetype of the downtrodden, perhaps, or in the long run does not matter. However interpreted, stage four transformations extend beyond the barrier of personal existence and are felt with a sense of profound significance, which is probably an understatement. Okay, note that these kinds of experience so far mentioned are consistent with the fact that we are beings enclosed in space. We say that space has not lost its stability. This changes with the onset of stage five. Stage five transformations do not always characterize an LSD session, but always characterize a DMT session which is the reason for including DMT in the experiment. And I should mention that DMT accounts in 1961 did not refer to elves or other elementals. That came later. Within minutes of an injection of DMT, a disruption of the appearance of space is felt as an outward rush of being to an infinitely distant point where a distinction between being and space is no longer tenable. The appearance of space has been destabilized. At the end of this process, which may take a minute to complete, transformations consisting of imageless, multicolored, multilevel planes, grouping and regrouping, occur in an ever-changing array. I should mention that an arrest of transformations in stage five creates a potentially dangerous situation. What happens then is a reduction of the multiplane of transformations to a rigid circular design accompanied by terrifying affect which may culminate in panic. Arrest of stage five transformations, and remember that arrest means arrest of the process of continuous change, Uh, may be the origin of the evil eye. And I have a slide maybe to illustrate that. Now, so far what has happened is loss of stability of the appearance of sense, thought, form, and space in that order. By now, now, the feeling of selfhood has lost all but one of the standards by which it measures its identity. Only the appearance of time remains intact. With the onset of stage six, this last measure of identity is lost. Transformation of the appearance of time strips the self of the ability to maintain a consistent identity. The term transformation of the appearance of time may not be quite correct. That is time as we experience it. It might be more appropriate to speak of the transcendence of time and in turn the transcendence of all appearance, landing us in a state of pure consciousness, consciousness perhaps I could say defiled by appearance of any sort. Uh, The terms ultimate 
uh, absolute come to mind in this connection. And I think there are perhaps three things that one can say about this state. One being that the loss of the self-other distinction uh, produces the paradox of being one with everything from the state of being nothing, with losing all identity, one is in the state of being everything, being in the state of all identity. Uh, one is, as Albert mentioned this morning, in, in, immersed in a field of light. One is a child of light, was Albert's way of expressing it. And third, perhaps, uh, perhaps the most important, one, one meets, uh, one came, comes face to face with the two injunctions of esoteric religion. Uh, one being the uh, need to uh, ex extend compassion to all sentient beings uh, without differentiation and without distinction. And uh, not an easy thing to do, of course, but um, nevertheless, one is confronted by the imperative to do so. And the second being to stay on top of the idea that consciousness is the origin of all appearance. Now, I don't need to make needless comments to this audience, but I would like to bring our attention to that second point. If consciousness is the sole origin of appearance, is what appears as sense, thought, form, space, and time, is that all illusory? I don't think so, but then what grounds do I have for saying that it is not? Okay, uh, I'm not going to discuss stage one. Opinions about that differ. Let's backtrack. I started with the claim that LSD can be used as a scientific instrument to separate consciousness into its component levels and show that they combine to form a structure, a claim I still have to make good on. I went into some personal history, looked at the problem of applying scientific method, and described some observations which resulted. Now, the question is, what do these observations add up to? What happens when they combine to form a theory. Now, this is a little uh, exercise of the imagination, imagination that I like. Compare, if you will, observations to pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Spread out on the table, the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle make no sense. They're meaningless. Assemble them into a pattern where they make sense, and you have a picture that until now was invisible unless the same picture appears on the cover of the box, that is. S solving the puzzle creates meaning. S assemble your observations in into a pattern where they make sense, and you have a theory that until now was unthinkable. Conceiving a theory creates meaning. The influx of new meaning attendant on creating a theory, on conceiving a theory, we may call semantic gain. Creation of new meaning is the true function of a theory and distinguishes it from the mere hypothesis. Now, we have reached a crucial stage of the argument. We have a set of observations relating to the normal LSD session. The normal session is marked by a succession of stages, transformations that occur continuously or are briefly arrested, uh, the consequence of the arrest of transformations is anxiety and so forth. We, we have a number of observations related to the normal session. There is a moment 
before the observations gel, when they don't make a whole lot of sense. At the moment when they gel, which is the moment of conception of a theory, an influx of new meaning or semantic gain is generated. What is the new meaning a theory of the normal LSD session provides? What do we know that we did not know before? Uh, well, it's obvious when you see it. We know that the stages of a session are levels of consciousness. What happens in a stage is happening at some level of consciousness. The structure of a session is the structure of consciousness. The effect of LSD is an effect on consciousness. The nature of consciousness has been defined. We can say we know what it is. That takes a while to sink in. Let's go back to philosophy of mind and see how it applies. Philosophy of mind rests on two fundamental beliefs. One is that consciousness, whatever it may be, depends on the brain. Consciousness is, consciousness is excreted by the brain, like toothpaste from a tube, or is related to the brain as, hardware is related, as software is related to hardware, or it is an epiphenomenon affected by but not affecting the brain, or it is a false appearance like a mirage. Whatever the case, consciousness without the brain is nothing. The flip side of the coin is that only one kind of thing exists, the material. Descartes' idea that two kinds of things exist, matter and consciousness, is dismissed as nonsense. LSD makes both beliefs look shaky. Others have commented on the difficulty of fitting subtle body experience and the like into the framework of current brain science. LSD makes things worse. Nothing in the physiology and anatomy of the brain accounts or can account for transformations of appearance and the multi-level structure of human consciousness. So, what do we do? One thing is to give up the dogma of materialism and see if dualism works better. Perhaps matter and consciousness exist jointly, sometimes relating, sometimes not. I asked just now if it made sense to say of the appearance of sense, thought, form, space, and time that appearance is real. If consciousness is the origin of appearance and consciousness is real, then appearance is real also. Paradoxically, appearance, which is the sum of our experience, is real. Now, if that can be allowed, a solution is at hand to the problem of creative play and representation. Creative play is the name I gave to transformations of appearance in stage two, when sensory imagination has been released from the constraint to maintain stability. Suppose that creative play is the normal state of the imagination and that only when demands of the environment become pressing does sense appearance settle down and become constant. This puts representation in a new perspective. Ever since Locke and before him Galileo, philosophy has struggled with the notion 
that material objects send out stimuli which impinge on organs of sensation and set up motions in the brain which turn into experience and um, how experience, I'm sorry, set up motions in the brain which turn into experience which copies or represents the objects. Now, how motions in the brain turn into experience and how experience copies or represents material objects has never been explained. It looks impossible. But if consciousness, not material objects, is the origin of appearance, the problem vanishes. Imagination engages in creative play until put on notice by the environment to slow down. Sensory transformations abate. Tra appearance regains stability and the external world resumes its normal look. Nothing is or has been represented. Then there is the embarrassing problem of the existence of immaterial entities for example, entities that manifest as peaceful or wrathful deities in meditation, or thought forms, which are images created with such intensity that they take on objective appearance, or apparitions encountered after death according to Bardo teaching. Dogmatic materialism, and with it philosophy of mind, as currently taught in the universities, has no truck with such notions. Unshackled from materialism, however, consciousness is free to create any of these species of appearance with no need of help from the brain to do, to do so. There are interesting questions to do with the self and the development of consciousness, but that is all I have time for today. Let me end with a defense of Descartes. I believe Descartes was right. He was wrong in mis mistaking matter as dead and mechanical, but let that pass. He was right in saying that consciousness can exist apart from the body. That experience of Descartes on the 10th of November, 1619, that threshold date of modern philosophy, brought on a spiritual crisis. Descartes' soul, his moi, his consciousness separated from his body, showing him that the two could exist independently. I won't develop the argument. Descartes took 18 years to get a subtly disguised version of it done on paper. Let's just say that dualism is right. Consciousness and body belong together but can divorce. And I hope philosophers of mind give this some thought. Now I have some slides. Yeah, These are two profiles of uh, a normal session. At the top there, session, the 11th of the sessions that I did, okay, the vertical um, line marks stages 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. The um, horizontal line marks hours after ingestion of LSD. So in the uh, session 11, up at the top, you see that... Um, the, uh, there was a short duration of stage one, stage two, a fairly um, long um, duration of stage three, going up to stage four for a short period of time, I think it was about 20 minutes, and suddenly a drop, and a complete reversion to stage one. There was no activity at all. But a very short time after that, um, <clears throat> the uh, participant returned to a stage three appearance, and then after that, there was a slow decline back to the normal state by about the end of the 10th hour.
at the uh, below the, the session 19 below this is um, quite interesting. There was um, a stage one and a stage two and a very very prolonged stage through when it seemed to go on for hours. Looked on looked like about four hours. I got a bit fed up at this point and decided to use a booster dose and I gave a, a booster dose of another 250 micrograms and the participant uh, had a very beautiful stage four experience and immediately after that uh, a stage six experience which is profoundly beatific and lasted for about three hours. Um, okay, so anyway, I just wanted to show that using this theory of the session, there is some science to it. Things can be plotted and demonstrated. Next slide, please. Um, Oh, they, these are some uh, illustrations of a session uh, done by uh, Stanley, a painter. Uh, this is a stage two, um, stage two of his session where the good brother and the bad brother, as, as he put it, uh, were flying in, in combination and um, going through various maneuvers and uh, re-experiencing uh, parts of Stanley's childhood. Next slide, please. Uh, and they uh, continued in this fashion over the crest of a mountain uh, to the um, border of, a, of an ocean where the sun became extraordinarily large and powerful. Next slide, please. Uh, then the scene dissolved into a field of blood suddenly, and this was the onset of a stage four, and this, the field of blood um, transformed into the earth. And this is the slide that Stanley drew of the uh, earth experience uh, seeming to uh, represent all fecundicity and uh, creativity. And, slow, and he spent a number of uh, minutes contemplating this Seen, as he told me, until the next slide, please. Um, it transformed into the emblem of a sunflower. And this sunflower uh, was itself um, replete with meaning uh, for Stanley, and he uh, described various transformations of the petals and the stamens that the sunflower went through until... Next slide, the sunflower was attacked by a, what do you call it, uh, that uh, creature, that sea creature, I uh, forget the name, really. a crustacean, anyway, uh, not a lobster, a crayfish. It was, it was threatened by a crayfish and Stanley freaked until uh, we, uh, we went through the uh, motion of identifying with the crayfish as we had practiced uh, earlier in the session, doing, uh, doing uh, identification with, um, uh, at a much lower level of the session. And the crayfish transformed, next slide, into a succession, a million uh, tunnels of light which conducted him up to the center, it seemed to be the center of the universe, which um, uh, was his uh, sixth stage of, of the experience. Now, at another time, in a DMT session, please, uh, next slide. 
Stanley himself, uh, this was the best he could do to describe the phenomenology of uh, the, 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 state, the, DM, the transformations of space, the, the multiplanar, multicolored transformations that's typical of the stage five <coughs> experience. And um, next uh, slide will show us what happens. Oh, this is, um, I came across some illustrations of, uh, of uh, Melanesian art. This is a Kiwi uh, club carved within a very fine fashion and to my imagination perhaps uh, represented a, a stage five experience. It, it has those, that same uh, um, plethora of, of walls and spatiality and seeming to come and go as you look at it. Um, next slide then. This is now going to show the negative aspect of a next slide, please. The negative aspect. Next slide, please. The neg okay, now, this is a very good example of what people go through when they can't stand uh, the transformations of uh, stage five and they freeze. They freeze what's going on. They freeze the motion. It, as I, if you remember, I was saying that it contracts to a circular design. These designs are always accompanied by Terrif terrifying affect. The one on the right has more of a humanoid um, appearance than the one on the left. The one is on the left is a more perfect experience. And this is what made me think that a rest of transformations in stage five may be the origin of the evil eye. Take it or leave it, but that is uh, a suggestion. Next uh, slide, please. Yeah, we leave that. Go on to the next one. Uh, I wanted to mention that this whole stage idea uh, did not originate with me. Um, I mean, my um, finding of it was uh, original, but uh, there are others who also um, represent uh, uh, LSD sessions in terms of stages. At the top, um, you see the very well-known uh, Blewett and Chvalos um, representation of uh, an LSD session. And you have to remember that this is a 1958 public publication when Duncan Blewett and Nick Trollis came up with this uh, schema. You have to remember that this was done in a hospital environment. Um, their stages um, in, in the second section, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, are stages of a therapy, of a therapeutic um, setup. They're not phenomenological stages. They're stages of therapy. And so they, they go through the pre-onset of symptoms, then you get uh, some ideational effects and some insight and so forth. But up at the top, you've got flight of ideas, flight into symptoms, um, and then confusion and a flood of ideas. And this is a frightening experience. And the, the text that um, Duncan... Um, Pub, didn't publish because it hasn't ever been published but it's on the net um, does emphasize the unpleasant aspect of the therapeutic experience in his hands that one has to go through before one gets to the blissful outcome okay underneath that we've got Maren Stolaroff's um, schema uh, again starting with what is called the evasive stage this again is a therapeutic 
um, layout of, of stages. Uh, starting with uh, the evasive stage, which is, uh, again, frightening, passing on to a very uh, typical, uh, st- what I would call a stage four uh, experience of symbols and personal and religious symbols, going on to a st- what I would call a stage six, the stage of immediate perception of the realm beyond space and time. Underneath that, we've got... Um, uh, this was published in the uh, Journal of Consciousness Studies in 1979. The work was done in 1977 at, uh, Stan Groff, under the direction of Stan Groff at the Maryland State Institute. Um, again, starting with anxiety, fear of the unknown, fear of surrender, and uh, uh, having to work through a period of terror before getting into the symbolic representation of dy- dynamic conflicts, as Margaret Berendis called it. Um, and then her third stage is the mystical experience, and then her fourth stage is the stage of coming back down. Next slide, please. Oh my God, not being able to read it. I'm just going to have to... <laughs> I'm going to have to describe it. Uh, Jean Houston and uh, Robert Masters produced a uh, a schema of uh, stages. They had four stages, um, which I'd better not go into, um, except to remark that um, Jean's Jean's third stage, which is the stage, her stage of... um, symbolic representation, her Jungian stage, is, I think, uh, very badly constructed. Um, it's Jean used to um, induce experiences in her subjects, as she called them, uh, with a lot of suggestion, and I think that uh, a lot of her book is um, on very weak grounds on this account. Uh, I needn't say anything more about that. The slide beneath the, sh- the schema belief beneath that is the very interesting one produced by Stan Groff and uh, I guess a lot of people know enough about that already without me having to go into it. So I think I'll close at that point and say thank you very much for listening. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned in the beginning that Dr. Bairdsford's description of his model of consciousness needs to be listened to at least several times if you're like me. There's so much packed into it that I found myself thinking about something he just said and then I missed the beginning of what he was now saying. So I'll be going back for at least one or two more listens, I'm sure. And I'll bet that I'm not the only one who had a smile on their face when Dr. Beresford was talking about DMT and he said, I should mention, DMT accounts in 1961 did not refer to elves or other elementals. That came later. (laughs) And if you read his listing in the Arrowwood Character Vaults, I think you're going to find an interesting line in it which reads, However, later in his life, he adopted a viewpoint that was opposed to the medicalization of psychedelics. And if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Beresford died just a year or so after he delivered this talk, so he must have already been aware of the rapid medicalization of psychedelics that was already taking place. And in light of the current trend to treat psychedelics as medicines, uh, well, it may be interesting to follow up on some of his ideas. 
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.